As Austin prayed this morning, um, as I've been thinking about um, the deaths of these kids and the two teachers, um, I have been mourning the loss of life, especially um, both seeing the pictures and then hearing the names and then like, yeah, it's, it's a lot. And I, and I grieve over a lot of the different um, aspects of this tragedy, both um, whether it's in Texas or whether it's we just celebrated, not celebrated, we just recognized the, the year um, anniversary of the VTA shooting. Um, and so, and I've been thinking about recent shootings in um, Irvine, right? I think in Southern California, and then also in Buffalo. And so what we're, we, we've been confronted with, and as Austin mentioned about being tired, um, is this kind of cycle and pattern of violence, of gun violence in our country. And the question of evil and suffering has to come up. Um, as, we, as we're continually confronted by these tragedies. And I've been thinking about the ramifications of suffering and evil as we um, you know, encounter another cycle through this. And I've been kind of wrestling and grappling with, you know, of course, as a pastor, how to, what to say and those kind of things. And, and yet, um, as I think about this, I've realized over the years that whatever your belief system is, you do have to wrestle with the nature of suffering and evil. And it's not just religious people who have to, to wrestle with it. Because um, a lot of times as I've talked to people who um, may have critique of faith, of religious faith, their critique is about, well, you know, why would God allow suffering and evil? And I would just say, why, why, why suffering and evil, period, regardless of whether or not you believe in God? And so as I've been thinking about that question, um, we, are, we, we are, you know, serendipitously coming to this text today, which is about how, what it means to confront suffering and evil and the Christian way of doing so. And my hope in preaching this message is that um, this message is not like an add-on to the Christian faith. It's not like those, one of those unpleasant truths that you try to like, push aside. Um, the reality of suffering and evil is integral to the Christian faith. It means it's required. It's a necessary part of the Christian faith. And so um, even in our pre-service meeting this morning, as I was talking about suffering and evil, and I was like, this is going to be about denying yourself and taking up your cross, and everyone's like, oh, wow. Like kind of laughing like, what a downer. Um, and yet that is, that is kind of like the substance. This is the substance of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The cross as an instrument of torture, of suffering, and representing evil, that's, that's what, you know, we, we worship Jesus on a cross. The resurrected Christ, and yet he goes through the cross. Um, and so I hope we would be mindful of that today, that um, these, these tragedies tend to like, you know, cause a lot of, um, you know, necessary mourning, and yet we can want to go back and escape the reality of it, and yet the way of the cross is actually to confront and face that reality and to have it be part of our lives. And so my prayer is that we would, we would be able to kind of look um, intently at this text and not easily forget it and recognize it's integrated with our understanding of what it means to be a believer. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me um, to Mark chapter 8. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read this in chunks and just go through each section by section um, and do my best to preach it in its context and to give it meaning in our context today. And so um, I'm praying God would speak through me in that regard. This is Mark 27. I'm going to read Mark 8, 27 to, the, to verse 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, 
Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Okay, so we are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here and we're going we're gonna to look at this section. So we're going to look at three sections today. We're going to go through um, chapter 8, 27 to 38. And I'm going to do chunk by, um, each of these chunks by chunk. Um, and what I want to observe right now is that this has just followed the miracles where Jesus has fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and he's explained it. And he's been trying to explain how there's these uh, metaphors of the 12 pieces of bread left over and then seven um, pieces of seven. seven pieces of bread left over and what that means. Um, and then he just healed a man who was, born, who was born blind. He did it in stages. And then now he's going with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he's asking them, who do people say that I am? And I want you to notice that the public perception of Jesus is anchored in the past. That the, the way people perceive who Jesus is is anchored based on something that they've experienced before. And the first thing I want you to notice is that in verse 28 it says, people think that he's John the Baptist. Not John the Baptist uh, 1.0, right? This is John the Baptist 2.0. This is the resurrected John the Baptist. Because as we know from previous chapter in, Mar- uh, I think Mark chapter six, um, John the Baptist had his head chopped off, okay? And there were suspicions that uh, the disciples were John the Baptist resurrected. And so now you have um, the suspicion and it's a superstitious culture. They're like, maybe this is John the Baptist again. This is John the Baptist resurrected. Um, and I think to us, it sounds preposterous that John the Baptist would be resurrected. And yet the other reference point, people say, is Elijah, who was a previous prophet. And so there's, a, there's actually a spiritual principle, a principle about the way we behave, or a human principle, a psychological principle um, called anchoring, which is that we, um, anything that we see in the present, we tend to only have categories for it based on the past. We see the present in terms of the past, okay? Um, and that's why, for instance, COVID has been so difficult for so many of us, it's because we don't have a past perception of what that looks like. We don't have a, we don't have a reference point um, for what that looks like. Um, and it makes me think of, and I won't say this is my favorite movie, but this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, Talladega Nights. Um, and, <laughs> and in Talladega Nights, uh, Will Ferrell plays uh, Ricky Bobby, he's a race car driver, and he's having dinner with his family, and he says a prayer. And his prayer is actually a very specific prayer. Actually, it's, it's addressed to a very specific person. And that prayer is, is to Jesus, but it's not to, um, it's not to like adult Jesus, right? It's to sweet baby Jesus because, uh, because Ricky Bobby has a conception. He has an image of Jesus. Um, it's the Christmas Jesus, right? It's infant Jesus in the manger. He has that conception. His, all of his conceptions of who Jesus is is based on this past conception. And so he prays to sweet baby Jesus, and no matter what anyone can convince him of, it's always sweet baby Jesus. Okay, that's his conception. And so I think, again, it's easy to make fun of Ricky Bobby and to make fun of that scene, and I love that scene because it's absurd. Um, And yet, for those of you who've grown up in the church, um, you may not have like a sweet baby Jesus kind of image, but your conception of him is rooted in something in the past. Okay, and for a lot of you, uh, for a lot of you, not all of you, but for, some, for a lot of you, um, in speaking with you over the years, especially if I've known you for some time, um, I've heard questions come up to me um, about what Jesus is really like. And invariably, really, a lot of those questions have to do with like some sweet, innocent version of Jesus that you may have learned as a kid, but doesn't actually exist in the Bible. 
Okay, it doesn't exist in the way that this text is describing. And so what I'd ask you to do is just as Jesus is asking his disciples and he's challenging their perception of him. In fact, this is what Jesus does. He is constantly challenging our perception and view of him. He's, asking, he's saying, hey, you know what? Other people may think this, but I want to know, disciples, what do you think? And then Peter answers, you are the Christ. And it's interesting that Jesus picks this point to ask them. Right? Jesus picks this point because at the beginning, when they were first called, they had no idea of what Jesus was, of who Jesus was. Okay? They had no clue. And yet throughout the course of this journey, as the disciples have been walking with Jesus, now they have greater clarity. They have greater insight on who Jesus is. And he's not Elijah. Okay? And he's not John the Baptist resurrected. Right? Jesus is the Christ. He's the promised one. He's the Messiah. And maybe the question that we can reflect on today, the question that we need to kind of, kind of think through um, in terms of what we do is, how is your view of Jesus being challenged? How is your view of Jesus being challenged? Because again, throughout the scriptures, Jesus is always confronting people and asking them, how, what do you think about me? And so let me just give two examples from, our, uh, from, the, from the message from the past couple weeks. One is um, Muhammad, when he preached about a humble and courageous faith about the bleeding woman. Okay, there's a bleeding woman who touched the garment of Jesus. And Jesus could have just let it pass, right? Jesus didn't have to say anything to that woman and allowed her to be healed. But he actually chose to confront her and ask her, who touched me? And then she had to confront and deal with her perception of who Jesus is. She had to declare who, she, who he thought him to be. And then in the previous passage, we have the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus asking him, begging him to heal the demon in her daughter to cast out the demon in her daughter. And Jesus makes this offensive statement that uh, it's the, the priority is on the children and it is not right to give to the children. Not, it is not right to give to the dogs what is meant for the children. Super offensive. And what this, what this is confronting is this woman now has to deal with his perception of her, number one, right? He's got to deal with his perception of her as a dog. And then second, he's got to de- she's got to declare, and she does, Uh, what he thinks of dogs, right? And that even though, yes, you're right, Jesus, uh, it is good to prioritize the children, yet you have enough left over to feed me. You have enough left over to feed the dogs. And so throughout the scriptures, Jesus is constantly challenging perception, and now it is revealed, you know, and he does it in phases, just like he accomplishes the healing in phases. Now he reveals uh, what he looks like, who he is. And the thing, the, the part that's amazing is now you see Jesus is the Christ, right? He's this glorious, and it's got to be understood, he's going to be this glorious political ruler, right? Because he's the prophesied one. He's Messiah. And as Messiah, he's going to deliver Israel out of foreign oppression. And he's going to bring healing. And he's going to unite the nations. Um, and so there's got to be this tremendous excitement for what Jesus is going to do and the glory that's going to follow him. But this is what he says in verse 34. In calling the crowd, oh, I'm sorry, verse 31. I skipped, I skipped one. 31. And he began to teach them, this is the disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So there's a prophecy here, right? Not, not only is there the prophecy, but he's like, hey, you know what? You're expecting this glorious political ruler and this Messiah to win, but actually it's gonna work the exact opposite way. Instead, the son of man's gonna suffer. He's gonna be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and then he's gonna be killed, and after three days, he's gonna rise again. And this is crazy, right? This is crazy talk, and it's interesting. It says, and he said this plainly, right? In verse 32, it says it plainly. And then Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And I think we can all resonate with Peter because this is a very strange prescription for how to win by losing, okay? How is it that he's supposed to win, but you win by losing? And so let me, let me give you an example because I think um, we've, we've probably heard this passage enough times that we've lost some of its impact or we, we don't recognize how relevant it is for us today. So I'm a Golden State Warriors fan and they're going to be playing for the, uh, national, the, the NBA championship, Okay. Now, I want you to imagine, and maybe it's not hard, but I want you to imagine someone makes a prophecy that the, uh, the Warriors will win the NBA championship. And yet, what if that prophecy comes at a cost? What if that prophecy comes at a cost of Seth, um, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson permanently ending, ending their careers through injury? And Draymond Green being permanently banned from the league? And then the Warriors, which is not hard, that hard to imagine. Um, and then the, uh, the Warriors being laughed at and castigated as a franchise, like universally hated. What if that was the cost for them to win a championship? Okay, where it cost them everything that made them what they are, right? That's the extent of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, you know what? Yes, I'm Messiah, but the, the path to this Messiah, this anointed one, the, this, this path is actually a road of suffering. It's a road of rejection, and it's a road to being killed. And I think the challenge for us is none of us like losing. No one likes losing, okay? No one likes losing. And Peter doesn't like losing either. And that's why he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him and says, no, Jesus, don't you understand? That's not the path to being a ruler. You don't, um, deliver, you don't uh, throw off Roman oppression by losing. That's not how it's supposed to work. And then Jesus says something radical, I mean, it's, again, it's completely offensive. He calls Peter Satan. He, he sees his disciples. He rebukes Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> okay? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so there's a couple different ways you can read this. Number one, you can look at uh, Peter as being possessed by a demon or by Satan. Right? Peter is under um, some kind of demon possession. Now, I don't know if that's true, Okay, but I would say that's unlikely, right? That's unlikely because at that point, Jesus doesn't cast out the demon. And yet, I think it's accurate to say uh, Peter was being influenced by Satan in some way, right? Peter's being influenced by Satan. That's why he makes that comment. Now, what is it then that, uh, that Peter's influenced by Satan? Well, it says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay, you are not sending your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And so I want to be very specific, and this is hopefully in line with what I've been preaching. When Jesus is concerned about us, he's not concerned about outward behavior. Okay, he's not concerned about traditions or outward behavior. What Jesus is concerned about is our heart. Okay, and the heart is actually has a very specific definition, biblically speaking. A heart is the innermost thoughts of a person. It's what a person is thinking and so what, uh, what Jesus is saying about Peter is your thoughts are wrong. 
your thoughts are evil because it's saying you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so Jesus is saying, you have, you have Peter, you have worldly thinking in this regard. And, and your thinking is worldly because it's, and it's similar to Satan because I think the root of what uh, Peter wants and what we all want is costless victory. Okay? He wants a victory that comes without paying any price. And as we're going to see in the rest of this passage, um, there is a price to victory. There is a cost to winning. And the cost to winning is losing. Okay? You've got to lose in order to win. And it's completely counterintuitive and paradoxical. So let's keep reading and, 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 and explore this paradox. This is verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, I want to, I want to observe a couple things. Up until this point, beginning in verse 27, the conversation was just with his disciples. Okay, and then beginning in 34, it's not, just, it's not only the disciples anymore, it's now the crowd. And you can think of this section almost like the opposite sequence of a parable. Because usually a parable starts with the crowd, and then, um, and then the crowd goes away, and then it's this private conversation between Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus explains the parable. But in this case, it's actually the opposite, right? Jesus is having a private conversation with his disciples about suffering, about his true identity as the Christ, and then it goes public, that conversation goes public, and, we, and this is what the crowd hears, is this very strange and difficult teaching about if anyone would come after Jesus, he must deny himself, take, take up his cross, and follow him, right? And it's a, it's a hard teaching. It's basically a teaching about losing, that everything about a life, of, a life of knowing and following Jesus is about losing, that you must lose your life. And so let me, let me, let me think about a couple ways in which we can consider this. First off, it can't just be about losing your physical life, but it, can't, it has to also include it, right? It has to include losing your physical life because Jesus is going to go to the cross. It's going to mean physical safety. He's going he's to jeopardize his own physical safety. So even though it doesn't directly mean losing one's life, it has to include it. It has to include something about the physical. What else do we notice about this? It says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So self-denial, right? Self-denial is going to be another aspect of what it means to take up one's cross. And then it says, take up his cross. This is the first time cross is mentioned. We don't know much about it. I mean, we don't know much about it based on the context of this passage. So what is it then that self-denial and the cross look like? And through, through this past week, um, I was having some conversations with our leaders about what does it mean to um, live out self-denial? What is suffering uh, look like, right? And one of the ways I would define it, and, and I would just really encourage you to think about it in this way, is to look at the context of the passage, 
right? So what, the rest of this, what does the rest of this passage say about, uh, about what the cross means? Well, you go back to verse 31. And verse 31 says, suffer. The verbs are to suffer, um, to be rejected, to be killed, and then to rise. Right? Those are the verbs. So the cross must mean something about those aspects. It must mean some kind of, it must mean suffering. It must include rejection. It includes, uh, and then there's a death, and then there's a resurrection. So cross has to be defined by some of the things that are in the context of this passage. And so the first thing, I guess the, the point based off these observations, um, the way I would apply this into our current context is oftentimes when um, someone preaches the gospel, we talk about the gospel being a free gift. We talk about, you know, salvation is free. And yet, if you're reading this passage, starting in verse 34, even before that, the gospel doesn't actually sound very free. It actually sounds like the most costly thing you could possibly do. It sounds like it's going to cost you everything. That's what this sounds like. Because it says, whoever would save his life will lose it. The attempt to preserve your own life actually results in losing your life. And then he says, well, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you surrender, if you deny yourself, okay, if you, if you denied that instinct of self-preservation on behalf of the gospel and on behalf of Jesus, you actually will save, you, you'll receive salvation. And I think that's a really hard teaching. That's a really hard teaching, but I think it's really important that we recognize when we are preaching the gospel, um, certainly anyone can receive the gospel. Anyone can. And it is free in the sense of like God is offering to us. And yet it costs us everything. It takes everything to be able to place your life, trust in Jesus, to surrender your pride and your instinct of self-preservation and lay it down on behalf of Jesus. And then the other aspect that I think is um, applicable and difficult for us, being a Christian also means suffering rejection. And I think that is really, really hard, very, very difficult for us today. Because if there's one thing that we want in this fragmented culture is we want to feel um, a sense of belonging. When, when we, living in a community like this country and the, even the Bay Area where technology gives us the, uh, the feeling like we're connected, the thing that we want the most is a sense of belonging. We want that so much. And yet what Jesus is saying is the path of the cross involves rejection. And he says specifically, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. For whoever is ashamed of me, the Son of Man will also be ashamed. So there's something about experiencing rejection on behalf of being a Christian, on the behalf of preaching the gospel, okay? Being able to lay down belonging as a part of being a Christian that is integral to the Christian faith, that has to be about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I know it's easy to suffer rejection for all kinds of reasons, Okay, all kinds of reasons. But what this passage is teaching us, it's actually good. It's good and important to suffer rejection as a follower of Jesus because that's what Jesus himself experienced. And so I've been thinking about how, um, how does this passage make sense um, in light of what um, has recently happened in this country and in light of, of tomorrow. So tomorrow's Memorial Day. We're gonna be celebrating and remembering those who have um, died on behalf of this country so that we could live. Because the essence of what it means to be a soldier is self-sacrifice. It is self-denial. 
And so we celebrate and remember those who have sacrificed their lives on behalf of this country. And one of the things that um, I was reading, I was reading an article from David French. I really appreciate his thinking. Um, and in his article, looking back on, I think it's, is it Uvalde? I don't, I don't know how to say the place in Texas. Okay. Um, the place of the shooting, um, there's some controversy around how long it took for the police to respond and go into the school. In fact, um, based, on his, this, based on some reports, um, it took 75 minutes before the police entered. Um, and uh, one of the critiques is that uh, these, these, police, these police did not demonstrate courage, self-sacrifice in being able to um, engage with the shooter quickly enough. I, I think it's really difficult because I can't, um, I'm not gonna, I, I find it difficult to be able to judge the police. I just, I think that's a very difficult job. And I would love to think that if I were put in that situation, you know, I'd be the first person, you know, through that door or maybe the second. I don't know, you know what I mean? I would love to think that I would have the courage to be able to do something like that, okay? I'd love to think I would. Um, but what I've been thinking about in, in light of all this and um, just think about what it means to, to sacrifice. And I was talking to um, Brett Bymaster yesterday. He's, he came here and spoke and he, he works at Healing Grove and um, he works with troubled youth. That's one of the uh, groups that he works with. And he's trying to open up a youth center and he's just trying, he's trying to work with young men who kind of fall into the category or fall into, who have a lot of the same temptations that this young man who, who did the shooting um, was also faced with. And I made a commitment um, maybe 10 years ago that I want to be involved. I want to mentor and equip young men, especially those who are disillusioned. And I made a friend about, a, about five years ago who fits a, a similar profile um, to, to, this, to the shooter and, and many shooters. Um, but what I've realized over the past couple years is that, uh, especially with this friend, the way that I actually need to love him um, in a way that would make a difference in his life, um, it would cost me everything. <laughs> okay, it would cost me everything. It would probably jeopardize my family. Um, it would jeopardize my reputation. It would take way, way more time than I would like to spend because really what I want to do at the end of the day in, in helping people is um, I want to kind of get out there and then I want to come home. <laughs> you know what I mean? I want to come home and I don't want to think about it anymore. I want to kind of go out there. I want to ch check the box in terms of helping someone and I want to I come back. And what I've realized when it comes to helping people like truly in the most significant way, it's actually super, super costly. Okay, any of you who are in helping professions recognize if you actually want to make a difference in someone's life, it actually costs you everything. Okay, and a lot of times, uh, well, I'll speak for myself, I'm not willing to do that. There is an instinct of self-preservation in me that refuses to want to give all of myself. And Jesus completely, Jesus understood this completely. Okay, he understood this completely because he says, he calls this generation adulterous and sinful. We actually don't want to pay the cost. And so the way Jesus, and, and if you think about this as genius, the way, the way to deal with evil and suffering is you have to face it. You have to confront it. And that's what the cross means. Is Jesus said, hey, you know what? I'm gonna confront this wicked and evil generation and I'm gonna allow this generation to do their worst to me. I will suffer everything. Okay, I will suffer the humiliation, I will suffer the rejection, I will suffer the torture, I will suffer with the, the physical beating, I will suffer the, re the rejection of the distance and the alienation from God, the betrayal of my friends, my disciples. I will suffer all of that and I will die because of that and I will rise again. 
And that's the way Jesus addresses evil as he confronts it through the cross. And that's the comfort for me. The, question, the sharing question that I want to introduce ourselves today for us to do, do during our open mic sharing time is what thought of man needs to die today in order that Christ might live in you. Because at the end of the day, it's actually the thoughts in our head, right? It's all about the thoughts in our head, the thoughts in our heart that Jesus is concerned about. And the thoughts of Peter, those thoughts about a costless victory needed to die. And Peter is going to be the pillar of the church. And what's great about Peter is that he opens his mouth without thinking, right? He just opens his mouth and stuff comes out. And this is, a, this, is, this is something sinful and evil in this case because he thinks it's a costless victory. But in the future, when Jesus redeems it and he dies to those thoughts and, is, and, and Peter's is raised again, you know, when, and I say that metaphorically, the spirit of God comes into him. Now he speaks, he's going to preach the gospel and he's going to suffer for Jesus. And so the question for me is what thought of man, if I were to interact with this on my, on my own, the thought of man in me um, is that, you know, when it comes to loving people is that I'm different. Okay, that's the thought of man that needs to die, that I'm different. I'm, I'm better than the average person. And therefore, when I love someone, it's going to be easier, okay? And it's going to make a profound impact. I don't have to spend as much time, but I'm going to be able to make an impact in another person's life. And that thought of man needs to die in order that Jesus might live, because I'm just like everyone else. I'm weak, in it, I'm weak and I'm broken, um, and I think I'm better, okay? And that's the problem with an adulterous and sinful generation, that the only way out for us is to take up our cross and to join Jesus in his death and resurrection to confront evil and suffering. And that's my prayer for us today. You know, we don't, we don't often do this. Um, I wanna have a question and answer time. Um, we'll just like, I'll just sit here um, after service and I'd love to, receive some questions and thoughts. If you have questions and thoughts about um, the shooting um, this past week and stuff we can do, I'd love to have that conversation. Austin and I have had some conversations this week. Um, and if you have thoughts and questions about just the nature of suffering and evil and this passage and what it means to deny oneself, I'd love to hear um, your thoughts as well. Would, we, would you pray with me? God, would you lead us into truth today? Would you reveal to us, I mean, you are revealing to us the evil um, of this adulterous and sinful generation. Um, the violence, the wickedness in thought, and also even in our response. For me, there's pride and foolishness. And so Lord, as, you, um, as, you, as your spirit works to lead us into truth and the reality of our sinfulness and evil, would you at the same time reveal your goodness and beauty and worth? And that on the cross where evil was confronted and you experienced suffering on our behalf, we would discover freedom and peace and mercy and compassion. And so, Lord, would we joyfully take up our cross today and crucify the thoughts of man so that you might live in us. We pray this in your name. Amen.